Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Hope you're surviving this captivity here. That's what one of my friends calls it, the uh, COVID-19 captivity. The question I had for him, is it going to last 70 years? And his answer was no. So anyway, well, good. If you have your uh, Bibles, or uh, and, and really, perhaps if you have your notes on the Psalms, uh, we will be looking at page four. And the value of that simply is it gives you a little bit of a, a framework to uh, analyze together what this wonderful psalm is going to explain to us. Uh, again, it's in Psalm 3. And if, again, you're looking at your notes, uh, if you just joined us, page 4. Um, I stated uh, this at the very end of our class hour last week, and I'll, I'll do that again. I'm pretty certain all of your various translations would have this. But uh, for Psalm 3, it has a little superscription, and it states, A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, those superscriptions were added a little bit later. It's kind of complicated, and that doesn't really matter. But this is probably accurate. It probably does reflect that. And if you are really interested in getting the historical background from the Bible, it would be from 2 Samuel chapter 15 and 16. <clears throat> in that passage, uh, which we're not going to turn to and read, it's quite long, but it's, it's a record of David's son, Absalom. As you remember, uh, David had multiple wives, and to most of his wives, he had different children. And that, again, is complicated. But what had happened was Absalom's half-sister, had been raped by another half-brother, and David did nothing. Uh, and he didn't discipline his son. He didn't do what a, a father should have done. And so Absalom, then within a, a brief period of time, takes it into his own hands, murders that half-brother, and uh, rebels against his dad. And that rebellion is one of the most devastating um, aspects of David's reign as the king of Israel. And it's a sad, it's a very, very sad story. But nonetheless, God uses that and does discipline David, and David is restored into a deep fellowship once again with the Lord. So with that very brief uh, comment, uh, this is about, and I think that's accurate, this is about David's um, situation as his son is rebelling against him. He seizes Jerusalem. Uh, he takes all of David's wives. Um, it's a humiliating time for David. And this is what David writes. I'd like to read the first three verses. This is what we sometimes call a lament psalm. The, the psalmist, in this case David, is lamenting his situation. It's a horrible situation. It's devastating. As I read, I want you to notice, I read from the ESV translation, I want you to notice how many times the term many is used. Oh, Lord. And again, please note when the word Lord, the title Lord is in capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Yahweh. That's what it's translating. Oh, Yahweh, oh, Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him. Now, before I read verse 3, I want you to look at that statement, there is no salvation for him. 
it's um, it's it's interesting because in stating that this is almost an attack on David's faith, a painful, discouraging attack on David's faith, and that would have been the case because David had been the king. David had been shown the Lord's favor over and over and over again. He represented Yahweh to his people, and now he's lost He's lost his reign. He's lost his kingdom. He's lost the capital. He's lost his throne. And so that there is no salvation in him is a taunt. It's mocking it, him. It's mocking his faith. And it's almost like you have been so bad, there is no hope for you, David. It's that kind of a taunt, which when you're at bottom, when you've hit bottom, and in this case, almost you've been already hit bottom. You've gone right through. David is in a terrible situation. And so this taunt is very piercing and very penetrating because it's attacking his faith. And David is just describing in verse 1 and 2 how many people stand against him, how many enemies have now. And when you go back and look at 2 Samuel 15 and 16, Many of his enemies from his past rise up and join with Absalom. So this is a this is a devastating time in, in David's life, not only as king, but personally. And again, note that many, many, many. Now, for each one of us in this, well, I was going to say in this room, but each one of us in this virtual room that we've gathered together uh, this morning, it. It's, it's hard to be able to identify with David because you haven't lost a kingdom. You haven't lost, you know, your, your right to rule the kingdom as David had. But most of us, and I doubt if there's any here in, in, in this particular gathering that haven't experienced personal devastation in your life. The loss of something it could be financial loss. It could be a personal loss. Maybe the, the, uh, the, the loss of, of, of your position in a business or your position of authority in, in, a, in a company or you've lost your job. I mean, there are just multiple ways in which it's a devastating blow. And, and with that comes whether it's something you're saying or what others are saying about you. Well, I thought God took care of you. I thought God protected you. I thought your God was a faithful God. Now, again, I, I'm, I'm sort of embellishing this and maybe exaggerating that, but even sometimes in our own personal life and our own personal way of looking at things, we can almost say, wow, God has abandoned me, or at least it seems that way. But I want you to notice verse 3, because this is, this is marvelous, a marvelous statement, despite the situation David is in, his confidence remains in the Lord. But notice that very first word of verse 3, strong word of contrast. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Now, all three of those phrases are, are metaphors. They're figures of speech. So let's unpack them. It's, it's a demonstration of the amazing trust and the steadfast confidence David has in his God. Despite what has happened, despite everything I've lost, despite the kingdom and throne that I've lost, Yahweh, you are my shield. 
shield about me. Now, every one of you knows what a shield is. It's a, it's a, it's a part of warfare. It was a protector of your main body parts. So what's David saying? Yahweh, Lord, you are my only defense. The only defense I have left is you. Everyone else has deserted me. Everyone else has disowned me, but you haven't. You are my only defense. You are my glory, which is maybe strange, um, maybe um, difficult. What does he mean by that? Well, Lord, you are the most important person to me. I am important to you. I've been created by you, created in your image. I've been value and worth to you. But you're my glory. You are the most important person in my life. And therefore, you're my glory. Everyone else had deserted him. And that is true. Almost everyone else deserts David during this rebellion. So he turns to the Lord. His defense turns to the Lord, the most important person in his life. And then, this is really extraordinary, very poetic, but very extraordinary. The lifter of my head. God, you honorably exalt me. And there's almost the hint, I will return as the king. But it's, it's zeroing in in those three phrases, shield, my glory, the lifter of my head. God's character and God's care for David. Everyone else had abandoned him, but not the Lord. And so David has that confidence. He has that certainty that is that the, at the heart, as David is to characterize in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, as a man after God's own heart. It is, it is God. It is God where he finds his confidence, his trust, his worthwhile and, and purpose-filled nature of his life, because everything else has been lost. All the tracers have been kicked out from under David. The only thing he has left is the Lord. Now, uh, to me, that's, that's a marvelous statement of faith. And I, for each one of us, depending on your situation, uh, to be abandoned, to be, to be betrayed, to, to find yourself lonely when so many have left, and in this kind of a situation for some people with the COVID-19, having nothing to do with their own situation, but being alone, they're not alone as far as the Lord is concerned. So anyway, um, that, that verse, before we move on, verse 1 and 2, there's the situation of David. Verse 3 is faith. How's he handling this? Any questions, comments? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Uh, I have um, one uh, question. How would um, the uh, the sh thing say where uh, Jesus says, why have you forsaken me, right? The, like a lament from the cross. How would that juxtapose to this? And then my second question is the where you use the word only because of the historical context, but it uses an indefinite article in multiple translations. You are a shield above me, not the shield above me. Is that? I didn't quit. I didn't catch that last part of your question. So it says, um, "But you, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield ab about me." My, yes. And you're saying that the, that the Lord was the only thing He had left. Where He's saying He's using an indefinite article there, saying that 
you know, it, he might be down, but there might be there might be something else. Was this historical, or is there something that I missed in the text? Well, I I, I don't. I'm not sure I want to make much of the indefinite article of, of A there. It's just he's saying it's it it's like a simile, but there's no like or as there. Uh, but the metaphor, you are a shield. Right. You are a shield about me. Mm-hmm. My only protector, mm-hmm. my only defense is you, God. That's I think that's all he's saying. Where's the only part? Well, there is no only. I I, oh. I I just inserted that. Oh, okay, got it. Okay, that's, that's what I was asking. That's no, I just inserted that. But it's just that, you know, in in terms of where he's at, his shield is the Lord. There right. isn't anyone else that's defending <laughs> him. Only the Lord is defending him. Now, your other your other part, your other question was about what Jesus said on the when cross. Je- yeah, when he says, you know, okay. why have you forsaken me? Okay. You know, and it seems like the same lament, right? And you well, think, well. <clears throat> Yeah, but there is a difference there. Uh, now, t- for me to answer, Russ, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to go on a bunny trail. Is that all right with everybody? <laughs> okay, I mean, okay. Now, um, you have to remember the context in which Jesus says this. My One of my mm-hmm. favorite passages on it is in Mark 15, where Mark makes it clear Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning, and then from 12 noon till 3 there was darkness over the face of the earth, piercing, penetrating darkness. What is going on in those three hours? Why is there darkness? This is April the 3rd, AD 33. It's a Friday afternoon, and Jesus is dying on a cross, and it gets pitch black. That is when God the Father pours out his wrath on the Son, pours out the sins of the world on his son and judges his son. And Jesus, and this is, there's a mystery to this. That I don't care what you try to do, what kind of words you use, you can't explain this. But in a, in a way that is impossible for us to understand, the father judges his son. And Jesus says, and that's in the gospel of Mark and a couple of the other gospels, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And Jesus experiences an, an abandonment that it, it is impossible to explain that. But the God-man will die alone. The God-man will die with the sins of the world on his back, so to speak. And the Father can't look on him because he has poured, in the words of Isaiah 53, he has poured out his wrath on his son. And so he judges his son, and this is the amazing part of God's grace, so that he doesn't have to judge us. David isn't experiencing that kind of abandonment here. There's only one person in the entire universe that have ever experienced that kind of abandonment, and it's the Lord Jesus, for your sake and for my sake. That's called the grace of God. Amen. That's called the grace of God. Thank you. That's a great question, but uh, okay. Anything else? Now, if you're following in your outline, the confidence that you see in verse 3 is exhibited in the words of verse 4, 5, and 6. It's extraordinary. It's, it's amazing. David writes, I cried, um, in verse 4 now, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again. 
for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of my many, of many thousands of people. There's that word many again, who have set themselves against me all around. Verses four and five are an immediate, remarkable, phenomenal praise for God's protection. And in the midst of all of this, David gets a good night's rest in verse five. He gets a good night's sleep. And, you know, it's, it's often said one of the measures of, 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 of real trust and faith in the Lord in the midst of difficulty is can you sleep? And I, I don't want to make too much of this, but David, it, it is really quite astonishing. In the midst of all of this, David is able to get into good night's sleep. He wakes up, and the Lord's still sustaining him. The Lord's still taking care of him. So you have verse you have verse three, the amazing statement of his confidence in God. You have verse four, his prayer life. He cries out to the Lord, and and immediately he answered me. What does that mean? He answered me. We don't know. We don't know the exact content of his answer, but the Lord answers him. And so you have confidence in verse three. By the end of verse six, you have greater confidence. I'm starting to raise my voice here, but you have greater confidence, an enhanced confidence and trust in the Lord, such that he he can not dismiss, he doesn't do that, but he can set aside all of the anxiety, all of the fear that goes with multiple people against him. There's a rebellion going on in his kingdom. He's lost his throne. And so he cries to the Lord, the Lord answers, and he lays down and gets a good night's rest. And then his answer in verse 6 is, I will not be afraid. I think all of you would agree, and it's certainly true in my life, one of the things I still struggle a great deal with is anxiety. I mean, I'm not going to admit to you I'm not going to lie to you. In these last couple of weeks, there have been a couple of times where, as Peggy and I have talked, we get a little bit concerned. My wife's health isn't real good, and we think, what would happen if she would get the COVID-19? She's one of those very vulnerable people, and you start thinking about that. You can kind of get anxious about it. Well, I think every one of you would agree, if you're in this room, this virtual room, and you're being intellectually honest, Every one of you could give me a list of things that you're worried about, a list of things that you could be afraid about. And that's a natural emotion. The importance is what do we do with that? And David is able to say, because of verse four, 3, his confidence, because of God's answer to his prayer, such that he's, he's at peace enough he can sleep, I will not be afraid. He's ready for the next attack that comes from his enemies. He's ready for the next onslaught of Absalom and those who are, who are aligned with him. So again, this is, a, this is a tremendous model, I think. It's a tremendous model of what Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Amen. I believe that's in, in verse uh, uh, verse 6 and so uh, of Philippians 4. And so you have an example lived out in the events of a person's life, in this case King David, uh, he's able to do that. 
And I think it, it's easy, and it's certainly easy for me to say this right now. I'm in my dining room. I'm in a comfortable room, and you know, nothing particularly threatening. But to say instead of worry, pray. Don't be anxious, pray. Very easy to say that. It's living it day in, day out, hour after hour, and all the things that are a part of just living in a fallen, broken world, let alone all the other circumstances. David is just able to model for us. Confidence in God neutralizes fear. The enemy, the enemy of faith is fear. The antidote to fear is faith. Again, it's easy to say that. But to live it is the mark, I should say, one of the marks of maturity and trust in the Lord. I have a, a very, very, very dear friend of mine who is dying of cancer. Uh, he just got, I got heard from him yesterday. He got a report from his oncologist. There's nothing more we can do. And I mean, that he's a strong Christian, a man of strong faith. I, I wrote him a long note this morning, but his, his, his faith, his faith in a sense is being tested only by this gripping fear of cancer. It's all through his body. It's growing in his liver. It's growing in his spine. I mean, all of those things that you don't want to hear about. But, but what I see in him is he's able to, in spite of just the hard, hard processing of this information, he's able to rise about that, about that. And as he said to me yesterday, but my trust is still in the Lord. My, my life is in his hand. And, uh, you know, humanly speaking, unless God chooses to do something different, it's not going to be too long, too long till he's with the Lord. But with that kind of, with that kind of faith, you're able to, despite the hurt and pain and questioning and, and the tears, you're able to rise above that and still say triumphantly, I trust in the Lord. Amen. In effect, what David is doing here. Okay, you're my student. Got it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, the last three verses, again, these early psalms in the Psalter are all pretty short, but the last one, if you look at your outline, praying to the Lord produces deliverance from adversity. These are, uh, oh my goodness, these are triumphant <laughs> words. These, these are words of amazing triumph, but David is saying, now what I'd like you to do is look at the word in verse one, rising, and look at the first word. I'm pretty sure it's the first word in all of your translations of verse 7. Rising against me, verse 7, arise, O Lord. <laughs> I mean, do you understand? That's an imperative. He's giving a command to God. Arise, O Lord. Amen. So, I mean, it's a triumphant declaration. Arise, O Lord. Man, yes. this is a prayer of faith. This is not the prayer of a spiritual milk toast. This is the prayer of a triumphant man of faith, despite all of his mistakes and all of his failures. He knows that God is for him. And so he says in great confidence, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. 
Now, in the Hebrew, it's kind of exciting to see that. You have this admonishment to God, arise, O Lord. And here's the effect. You will save me, O my God. As you enter into my defense as my shield, the impact and result, save me, O God. Now, I, th- he's not talking here. I mean, I guess you could make it. Uh, he's not talking here about the salvation from sin. He's talking about deliverance from the extremely difficult situation he's in. God's fighting for him. And then he adds, so, so confident, he puts this against a little bit like we saw in last week's psalm, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. These are, uh, uh, again, these are what are called proleptic futures. You translate it in the present tense. He's so confident that God's going to rise and save him and fight for him. He writes as if it has already occurred. He's declaring something out of his faith and confidence that, in effect, God has already done this. I mean, that's one of the almost astonishing things about David's faith that you see over and over and over again in the Psalms. He will ask God to do something, and then he'll put it in a verb tense where it's as if it has already occurred. That's the level of faith and confidence that King David has in the Lord at this, at this juncture in his life. And that's what's going to happen. It's a terrible, terribly thing, difficult thing to read about. But what happens to Absalom? What happens to those men who had joined with Absalom? And that's beyond our story, but God, uh, beyond our study of the psalm here. But that God will fight for him. And that's important for you. I, I said that to my friend. God is fighting for you. Now, in his fighting, I don't know what he's going to do. He may choose to cure him of his cancer, but he's fighting for him in a sense. He's going to bring him home to heaven. And that's where his confidence is. That's where his certainty is. God is not going to allow this to lead to my separation from him. It's just going to lead me to heaven. I read a little piece by Johnny Erickson Tata earlier this week, and I shared it with my wife who is having some difficult physical issues right now and is losing a lot of weight and things like that. And it was just as, as Johnny reviews the circumstances she's in as a quadriplegic and every day is just a struggle. I mean, she can't go to the bathroom on her own. She can't brush her teeth on her own. She can't comb her hair on her own. And it was just as she rehearsed all that. And then she moved from this lament to these words of triumph. And she talks about, You know, we as Christians are all pilgrims. We're all pilgrims passing through this fallen, broken world headed for heaven. And pilgrims think of crowns and rewards and laying them at Jesus' feet. Pilgrims think of joyful, boisterous, bombastic praise to our God around the throne. Pilgrims think about walking in fellowship. And you see that? That triumphant face in the midst of devastating circumstances. And Johnny represents, and it's a very different circumstance because David's experiencing rebellion, but it's the same kind of circumstance and you're feeling abandoned. You feel that there's no hope. Where's her hope? Where's her confidence? In what God has promised to her, what my friend who's dying of cancer, what God has promised to him. And that promise is, 
you're a pilgrim. I'm going to take you home to heaven. And I will keep that promise. And that triumphant, confident faith, David then declares in verse 8, where they had taunted him in verse 2, there's no salvation for him in God. What does David say? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And meaning the covenant people of God, but also the, the people who have experienced the salvation of the Lord. So it ends, it, the psalm, Psalm 3, ends in this phenomenal note of triumph. I wrote in my Bible, and I'll share it with you, I wrote in my Bible right next to this psalm, Romans 8, 31. And the operative part of that verse is, I'm sure you all know it, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, and so you, my question for you, is God for you? Well, please say yes. yes. <laughs> so if God is for you, who in the world could ever of any worth and value stand against you? If God is for us, we don't have anything to fear. Again, it's easy to say that, but that is the heart. That's the vital center of our confidence and our trust and our faith in the living God. That's a great little song. I hope you agree. Any qu final questions or comments before we? I had a comment. I had a comment regarding Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. As I thought about this uh, chapter, uh, it says, "For I know the plans that I have for you," declares the Lord, "plans to prosper you, and not to harm you, and uh, to give you hope." And the future. And then God is not surprised in Isaiah 1422. Um, it just seems that if we like I know the person you talk about, Jim, that he's lived his life close to the Lord. And um, and so it's he's just a step away from um from that relationship, and I think that's why he can he can claim what he claims. And can you comment on because we grow constantly toward the Lord, we are seeking Him, uh, and in times like this, like the COVID nineteen, and um, what what is what's your comment about where we are now? Um, in our relationship with God. Very good, Mom. Thank you. Brilliant guess. Three dollars. I just filled up a font for three dollars. Wow. Would somebody else interject something there? Okay, I I missed what was said. I heard what Fred said, but I thought somebody else said something. Well, anyway, well, I'm I'm you in a way, Fred. You answered your own question. <laughs> in everything you said, even quoting from that wonderful Jeremiah passage and so on. But uh, I think um, part of my answer, and that was one of the things I found so uh, wonderful and encouraging about what Johnny Erickson Todd had written that my, my wife was so blessed by, but to, to remember something, and this comes from Peter's uh, epistle, but to remember something that we are pilgrims. Um, to to come to the cross 
and accept the salvation that Jesus offers us, to pick up that, that gift off the table, and to then begin that wonderful process of sanctification, I think part of that growth begins that, that understanding that we are just pilgrims. We are just passing through. The book of Hebrews talks about that in that wonderful chapter on faith in chapter 11. But Abraham, Abraham had a, a much different view of things. He was looking eternally at things. That was certainly true of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of Joseph. That was certainly true of Moses. That was certainly true of, of the prophets who wrote so much about the future and so on in the Old Testament. But that idea that this is no longer our home. Our home is in heaven. My dad and my, my mother-in-law and my wife, my, my personal mother, uh, my, my mother and my wife's mother, they all died within about two years, a little over two years' time. They were in their 90s. They were all sick and just all that tragically goes with, with being in your 90s. But those last months of their life, every, all three of them, my dad first, then my mother-in-law, and then my mom, she died exactly one year ago, last April. Yeah. Every one of them, they talked about going home. You know, they, 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 it, for them, it was this amazing thing for Peggy and me to tear over and over again. I just want to go home. I just want to go home. And there, there is a, a powerful exclamation of what Johnny was saying in that little article she wrote. We're pilgrims. This isn't our home. This is, it's, it's a place of blessing. God delights in blessing us and, and, and blesses us amazingly. But we hold things, I'm going to put it like this. We hold things like this, not like this. Because things like this mean that's the tempor temporal nature of things. They're not going to last. Jesus said in John 14, I'm going back to the Father. Don't be worried about that. Don't be anxious about that. Because in my Father's house are many many palaces, many mansions, many, many homes. I'm going to prepare one for you. I'm coming back for you, which is the fantastic promise that you and I are all still holding on to. Jesus told us he's coming back for us. I'm holding on to that promise. That's a pretty important promise. All right. Let's look at Psalm 4. Let's introduce it. Were there any other questions? or I didn't think there were. Any, any others? All right. Psalm 4. Again, if you look at the superscription, that's that little statement right above where the psalm begins. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Now, I think you know all that, but I'll just remind you, these were hymns. These were the songs that Israel sang as they gathered first at the tabernacle and then later, of course, at the temple. These are the songs they would sing. Some they would sing as they're moving up to Jerusalem because all Israel spread out all over its land in the feast days and holidays and Passover, et cetera, et cetera. Many of them would come to Jerusalem and they would sing these psalms as they're coming to Jerusalem, among many other places. So he's just saying, this is I've written for the choir. And Asaph, A-S-A-P-H, tells us that in Chronicles, Asaph was appointed by King David to be head of the choir. He was the choir director. He, was the, he had the chair of music in David's uh, kingdom. So he's, David is writing this. We do not know the exact circumstance 
unlike Psalm 3, we do not know the exact circumstance of David writing this. It's a little bit like the previous psalm. There's a little bit of a lament here. David is, David is experiencing discouraging things. So let's look at verse 1. If Again, you're following in your outline. I put that as God brings relief to his people. Answer me. That's the prayer. Answer me. <laughs> uh, do you ever talk to God like that? Answer me. I raised my voice to get your attention. I hope you're answer me when I call. The anticip don't, don't misread that. The anticipation of that declaration is this is a God who hears and answers prayer. Amen. He's not some distant landlord, some absentee landlord, a deistic God who creates and is never involved in anything. That's not God. And so there is that anticipation, that certainty, that confidence that God hears and answers prayer. Do you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6? <clears throat> or actually, I think it's in Matthew chapter 7. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Do you remember that? Yes. That's that's he's and he talks about that in several different ways. That's the certainty. When you ask God, when you talk to God, when you pray to God, be certain He'll answer you. And so there's that confidence. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. The righteous God champions. The righteous God fights. The righteous God is for his people. God of my righteousness. And of course, that has fantastic meaning in the completed work of Jesus Christ, where we become righteous because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But he's saying, oh God of my righteousness, my standing Genesis 15, 6 of Abraham, it says he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's when Abraham was saved, the way we would put it in the 21st century. But David is already saying, God of my righteousness, my standing with you, my righteous standing with you, where you champion me and champion the righteousness that now I have, have, have received, I know, I know you will answer. You have given me relief when I was in distress. That's past. That's in the past tense. You have given me relief when I was in distress. God is a God of history. And for you and for me, in walking with God, I think every one of you, if we could go around the circle, every one of you could give testimony to the faithfulness of God in your past, to God giving you relief when you cried out to him. And every one of you could write down a testimony of that. You could probably put a, some of you could probably put a pretty long list of things if you walked with the Lord for decades. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. Now, I want to weave a couple of things together here. Verse 1 is a statement of David's position. 
I call, O God, of my righteousness, a statement of his position. When God looks at him, he sees a righteous individual who has put his faith in God. When I used that example earlier, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and was counted him as righteousness. That's when he was justified. So David, that's his position. He's righteous. Second thing is David rehearses and reviews God's faithfulness to him in the past. That is a very good thing for you and me to do. I have told you this story before. Some of you, it's been a while, but I'll tell it here because it fits. When I was in graduate school and seminary, doing my theological training, a very close friend of mine in his family, he had three children. It was an amazing situation, graduate school with that kind of a family. But anyway, they had a Jehovah Jireh box and, uh, in, in, their, in their family. And what he did every year with his children they would start new. Now, Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh is from the Hebrew, it's from Genesis 32, the Lord will provide. And so what, what Dan did is every time with his children, with his wife, and their situation in their life, they would ask the Lord to meet a need, a, a very real need sometimes. Sometimes financial, sometimes it was health, sometimes it was certain circumstances, sometimes it was things in school or whatever. They'd ask and they'd write it down on a piece of paper. And then, however long it took, whenever God would answer, they'd then write down the answer, how God answered, put a date on it. Then they put it in the box. And at the end of the year, I can't remember whether they did it in end of December or very early January of the following, but whenever they did it, they would open the box and just think, think of that object lesson for those children. Going back over this last year, you have given me relief when I was in distress. And Dan, with his kids and his wife, had opened that box and look at all of the ways in which God was faithful to them in the last 365 days. And that is why God is a God of history. And God is a God of history, wants us to review and refresh our minds and our hearts and our souls with a remembrance of all God has done for us. And that's what David is saying. Part of my confidence and trust in you, thou, in this moment, is based on the premise, you have been faithful to me in the past. And this is the third thing I want you to see. His cry to God is, be gracious to me. God is a God of grace. And you and I are sustained daily by the grace of God. We are not sustained. I think you'll understand why I'm putting it this way. We're not sustained by our works, which merit the favor of God. That God's not into performance-based Christianity. God's into grace. There's saving grace. There's sustaining grace. And there is the eternal grace when he takes us home. For the unbeliever, there's common grace. But for you and me, there's saving grace. For by grace, through faith, you're saved, not of works, let's name answer both. There's the sustaining grace. That's what he's talking about here. The grace that sustains us day in, day out. God owes us nothing. God offers us everything. This man, King David, knew 
the grace of God. If you look at Psalm 51, David's great penitential psalm after about a year when he tried to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba and the, the killing of her husband and all that. It's an amazing psalm to study. But you've, you see what David says. The very first thing he says, be gracious to me, O God, for I've sinned. He doesn't bring up God's justice until verse 4. What if, God, what if David would have prayed to God, be just to me, O God? If that was his prayer, what should God have done? Wiped him out. He had done something that was just horrific in the moral law of God. But David knew his God, and so he appealed to God's grace. That's what he's doing here. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. And every one of you in this virtual circle understands that, I hope, that God is a God of grace, and he deals with us in grace. And I, Peggy and I have said this so many times. Aren't you thankful God deals with us in grace and not justice alone? If he dealt with you and me only on the basis of his justice, every one of us would be smoldering cinders in the carpet. But that's not how God deals with us. He's an amazing God of grace. David, excuse me, Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians about his thorn in the flesh. And he, and we don't know what that was, a lot of debate, doesn't, doesn't matter. But he prays to the Lord three times. And every time, what does God say? David, or excuse me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to take it away. So there, there you see an insight into that sustaining, that idea of the sustaining grace of God. God's grace sustained Paul day in, day out, even with the thorn in his flesh. And so David is, is praying this. Based on his standing, his position, part one of verse, of, of verse one, because of God's faithfulness in the past, part two of verse one, he can say to the Lord, be gracious. I know you're a God of grace. That's how you saved me. I know you're a God of grace. You have demonstrated that over and over and over and over and over and over again in my life. Lord, I'm asking you to be gracious again. Hear my prayer. I'm hurting. This is a difficult time. It's a difficult time for me. The distress, the antagonists are real. And so that leads to verse 2, 3, 4, and 5. All right. I spent a lot of time on that one verse, but it's so it's so important. You got that? Okay. Now, I don't know how we got about, uh, uh, well, almost 15 minutes. So let's see if we can get two, three, four, and five done. Oh, men, it perhaps talking about men of position and authority. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? All right. Verse 2, again, we are not exactly sure what specific circumstance in King David's life this is referring to. So it doesn't do much help to try to figure it out. But 
what what they're what they are particularly taunting David with, what particularly they are doing with David, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? There is whatever is going on here, they're shaming the king. His honor as a king is being turned into shame. So they're shaming him. One thinks of mocking him, making fun of him, perhaps doing very specific circumstantial things that we don't quite know what this involved, but instead of honoring the king, they're shaming him. How long will you turn your vain words? That's how the ESV translates that. Vain means empty, worthless, baseless, and seek after loss. Okay, now we're getting a little more of an understanding. These men of rank, men of authority in his kingdom, are turning on him. And instead of treating him as the king with honor, they're shaming him more specifically. They're using vain, empty, worthless words to speak lies against David. They're lying. They're telling false stories. They, they are slandering David. And for any person that's ever been in any kind of leadership role, that often can happen. People talking behind your back, people hatching tales and lies, misrepresenting truths about you. And so whatever the specific circumstances are, this is what's happening. David is in a very vulnerable position. People that are in some level of authority in his kingdom, that's probably who these men are. These men of rank, position of authority, are lying about him. They're shaming him as king. They're trying to undermine his authority, undermine his position, perhaps for their own personal reasons that we don't know about. What's the first word of verse four? But, strong word of contrast. But, know this. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. They're trying to discredit the king. But who is fighting for the king? Yahweh. Now, I, uh, there's a lot I want to do here with verse 4. So here you have these men of authority, men of rank. We don't know who they are, but they're discrediting David. They're lying about David. They're telling misrepresentational stories about David. They're shaming David. And David says, okay, but I want you to know this. Yahweh sets apart the godly. That term, that phrase sets apart is language of the covenant, language of the Abrahamic covenant. God has set apart. God has chosen. God chose Abraham, not because of anything he had done in Genesis 12, not because he merited it. God chose him. God set him apart. And that amazing story that follows in Genesis. I want you to notice now, again, I'm reading from the ESV translation. Set apart, they translate this the godly. 
The word godly there is tied to the Hebrew word chesed, H-E-S-E-D. Now, I hope all of you remember when we were still at the First National Bank building, I wrote on the pad H-E-S-E-D. And we talked a lot about that. So now it's time for you to dust off the cobwebs of your mind and remember that. Because that is an an adverb of that particular noun. So God has set apart in the unconditional Abrahamic covenant way the steadfast, loyal, loved ones of God for himself. Because chesed means loyal covenant love. So God has set apart, as in the Abrahamic unconditional covenantal relationship, those steadfast ones who he has covenantly loved for himself. Now, I try to really flesh out the power behind those phrases and words at the beginning of verse 4. David is saying, I don't care what you guys say. I don't care how you discredit me. I don't care how many lies you tell about me. I don't care how much shame you try to dump on me. God is fighting for me because he has set apart Abrahamic unconditional covenant language, the steadfast ones who are object of his covenant loyal love for himself. I belong to him. I'm in an unconditional, unilateral, covenantal relationship with him. And he hears me. He hears me when I call. Now, when you put all of that together, you you kind of get, wow. Here's a man of great confidence and great faith and great trust. He knows his God of grace. And he knows his covenantal relationship with that living God. Question. Do you have that kind of covenantal relationship with the living God? Yes. Now, everybody should unmute and say, yes, and then turn the mute back on. Yes. Okay, good. I mean, let's, let's, let's make sure this is clear. David can say this, and you're saying, well, sure, he can say that. He's the king. He had a covenant. No, 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 no. That's true, but so do you. The Lord has set you apart. Your covenantal relationship with the living God is the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated on Good Friday when he shed his blood on the cross. The godly, the chesed, the chesed ones, You are the steadfast, covenant, loyal, love objects of God. He set you aside for himself. The Bible talks about you and me as saints as being the inheritance of Jesus Christ. He set us apart for himself. It's just an amazing thought. You and I have exactly that same covenantal relationship with the living God that David did. The nuance, the nuance is a little bit different, but it's the same. So that we can confidently say, the Lord hears when I call. When I cry out to him, when I pray to him, he hears. My faith is steadfast. I'm in an unconditional relationship with him. It's a covenant. 
I have become the object of his covenant loyal love. I'm one of the chesed ones for himself. He hears me. And if you and I can have that kind of confidence and that kind of trust, wow, very little can shake us in the struggles and, and difficulties of just living in a fallen world where people will lie about us. People will seek to shame. People will seek to discredit and, and um, bring you down, so to speak, which is apparently what they were trying to do to King David. I have a question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, on, the, uh, on the word inheritance that you mentioned, this has been something that I've um, wondered about for a while. Where the inheritance, right? That implies that somebody died and left something, right? Yep. Or is that a different kind of inheritance, right? That's it's mentioned in temporal terms, but there seems to be a larger definition that I'm that is escaping me. You know, because well, it's like Christ it, isn't going to die and hand the keys over to us, right? And say, "See, I'm out of here," you know. The Father, this is, this is the way it, it's put together. The Father promises to the Son, you and I, as his inheritance. We are the, because of Jesus being faithful to the Father, going to the cross and dying that substitutionary death, and then the Father through the Holy Spirit, that's how Paul talks about in Romans 1, raises us from the dead. We are the inheritance of Jesus. And so that the father promised that to the son. And so I'm, I'm really embellishing that, but that, that would be a very accurate way to talk about that the, the end of verse, uh, the, the, the middle of verse four there for himself. Let me see. And that gives us a fantastic understanding of the covenantal relationship of a covenant making, covenant keeping God. God is interested in making it possible for his image bearers to walk with him in love and communion. That's why he created us. I hope you understand that. The Trinity, they were not just sitting around one day, I'm making this up, but sitting around one day and saying, hey, what do you want to do tomorrow? Well, let's create. It, it's it. It, that's the wrong way to say it. It's, it's, it's an amazing truth that resonates from Scripture. First John chapter 4, two times, it says God is love. And in eternity, before anything was created, was there love and communion? Absolutely. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that love and communion is now a part of God creating human beings, as Genesis 1, and following says, in his image. And so that he can walk in fellowship and have a love and communion that Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed for all eternity to, to be with his image bearers. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. It tells us before Genesis 3. He walks with them in the garden on an incredible demonstration of fellowship and intimacy and love and communion. And that's what God wants. So he, he doesn't have any needs as God, but he creates to share that love and communion with his image bearers, the chesed ones who are in a covenantal relationship him, he gets joy, exhilaration from his image bearers wanting and desiring to walk with him. Doesn't that get you excited? I mean, really, that, that's, a, that's just an amazing fact about our God. We belong to him. He set us aside 
for these wonderful, gracious, glorious, fantastic purposes that only eternity is going to fill, uh, fulfill. It's, it's really a, a tremendous truth that helps keep us going in days like COVID-19 entombment and captivity. I embellished that a little bit. All right. What time is it? Well, I guess, uh, oh my. Do you recognize verse four? Be angry and do not sin. Does that sound familiar? In your anger, do not sin. Yeah, does that, sound, does that sound familiar? That's from Ephesians chapter four. I believe it's verse 32. Here again, you see, or, or, no, not 30, 26. But here you see again this continuity and connectedness between the Old and the New Testament. That's where we'll start tomorrow. I'm not tomorrow. <laughs> Next Wednesday, excuse me. I, I hate to end, but I, I'm afraid we're, we're getting past our time, and I do want to pray. Are you with me? Your, your thought paper for next week is take Psalm 3 and apply it to a very specific circumstance in your life. And if you don't want to do that, take verse 1 of Psalm 4 and apply it to a very specific. Review your position. Review God's faithfulness to you and why you have the right to appeal to him as a God of grace. I know you won't do that, but it'd be fun to just have you conceptually think through that. Well, I'm going to pray here, and uh, we'll just pick up with verse 4 next week. I'll summarize a little bit, but I hope you're being blessed by this study in the Psalms. It's, uh, it's not something that's often done, but I think it's one of the more rewarding things to do as Christians, is to study these individuals like David, and the lyrics that they wrote, which are from their heart, they lived this stuff. And they put it down for us to be blessed thousands of years later. All right. If you have any questions that come up as you think about this some more, don't be afraid to email. I'd be delighted to answer them. Let me pray here for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, these are amazing uh, passages of Scripture as we see the heart of the psalmist. In both cases, both three and four, David, but you see the heart of the psalmist as he pours out his heart to you laments and, and, and wails in a sense of the situation, but he always turns to you. And I love verse 1 of chapter 4 of Psalm 4. It's one of my favorite verses in the psalm because King David recognizes his position, can articulate your faithfulness to him in the past, therefore having every right that the authority that comes from that to call out to you as a God of grace. Lord, you and I, every one of us around this room, this virtual room, has the right to call you Heavenly Father, has the right to review and rehearse all of your faithfulness in the past, and to know that our standing as righteous people because of the finished work of Christ is solid. Nothing can shake us. To ask you and to, to, to implore you to help us, to fight for us, to be our advocates, to, to deal with those things which are out to, to destroy us, to ask you to be gracious to us again. Thank you, you're a God of grace. Thank you, you're a God of mercy and compassion. And the greatest example of your love is the cross. That's how much you loved us, that you were willing to send your son. We will remember that in two days, 
and then celebrate the powerful message of the resurrection on Sunday. Be with these men, even in this unusual time of being pretty much confined. We still can represent you. We still can be your salt and light. To be men of faith and men of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. See you next Wednesday. Blessings on you. Peace, gentlemen. Happy Easter. Bye-bye. Happy Easter.